my name is Malcolm Stern, and I started this series back in 1982, so it's been going for 34 years. And my original ethos about starting the series is I wanted it to be a place where seekers of wisdom could gather, where people could come and actually um, not just hear some ego pontificating on stage and you'd be the willing sponges who'd lift that up, but, uh, but actually to be here to, to share with each other about something that's inspiring and the way that the world is operating. And uh, I was just watching um, a film the other day called Occupy Love, which was about the Occupy Wall Street and other movements. And I happened to come across um, quite a few clips of Charles, uh, our speaker tonight, Charles Eisenstein on there. And uh, I realized how lucky we are to have, first of all, what's, what's really important for us is, is that there is a next generation. Um, because I'd seen a lot of our speakers sort of aging until they get into their sort of 70s and 80s. And, and, uh, and, and what's, the, what's the, the fresh new voices that are heard? But actually, Charles Eisenstein, for me, is one of the, one of the very great minds on this planet. His book, Sacred Economics, is, is, a, is a book that's turned economics on, a, on its head. And, uh, but he's, he's clearly a, a thinker. And so tonight, we'll be able to share with Charles on the fertile ground of bewilderment, which is a lovely title in itself as well. So could I ask you to give a very, very warm welcome to Charles Eisenstein. beautiful British people. Uh, it's good to be here again. Um, there, the the uh, organizers uh, mentioned to me that they probably have never had a talk here with the word bewilderment in the title. And, you know, because, and I can understand why, because bewilderment is not s supposed to be a very good thing uh, in our culture. You're supposed to know what to do. You're supposed to have a plan. You're supposed to understand things. I, 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 this thought came to me recently as I was um, reading about the, some interview with Donald Trump or something like that, and the candidates never say, I just don't know the answer to that. I really have, or they never say, I have no idea what to do about that. That's not okay. If, and, and I suppose that when we're choosing our leaders, Ordinarily, we would think that we want somebody who has a plan and knows what to do about it. Unless our society has reached a place where the usual plans and the usual answers and perhaps even the whole way, the whole um, normal approach to problem solving isn't working. And if as a society, we, we truly don't know what to do, then a leader who thinks he knows what to do, but actually just wants to reenact something from the past, isn't going to be very helpful. And maybe we actually do need somebody who says, I don't know what to do. Everything we've tried hasn't worked. And, we, and I don't know what to do. And I'm re ready to learn. Because I think that our culture really is reaching that place. Originally, when I wrote the title for this talk in the description, uh, it was uh, the Brexit vote had just happened. And I sensed from reading the news that Britain was stunned. 
and had this moment of, of bewilderment. When, when, when the, the expected trajectory of politics had been abruptly terminated and you were standing at the brink of the unknown, what's going to happen now? We don't know. And very quickly, everyone sought to make sense of it and to frame it in familiar terms. So those familiar terms, uh, from what I could see, had to do with bigotry and xenophobia and racism, and that was the explanation. Uh, a moment, like kind of, a, you know, a portion of the population has suddenly gone crazy or uh, regressed to uh, some kind of um, uh, primitive mindset, you know, some kind of uncultivated, uncultured uh, racism that we're supposed to have gotten over a long time ago, and this is kind of a throwback to a less enlightened time and so forth, and, and we've got it. But I found that framing to be kind of a convenient um, diversion from that moment of almost panic in the face of the unknown. Because you could ask, well, where is racism coming from? Why did whatever, 51% of the population all of a sudden become so virulently racist. We tend, okay, so the conventional way of problem solving in our civilization depends on finding a, usually a single linear cause for something and then trying to go to war against that cause. And the cause that's identified is typically something that is most amenable to the kind of solutions that we already use. Uh, so for example, I hope that's not too abstract, but let me give you some concrete examples. So, so suppose the problem is uh, a recurring ear infection. Well, what's the cause? Cause is bacteria. What's the solution? Kill the bacteria. Suppose the problem is terrorism. What's the cause? Terrorists. What's the solution? Kill the terrorists. Problem, crime. Cause, criminals. Solution, kill the criminals. Problem, uh, falling crop yields. Reason, weeds. Solution, kill the weeds. Problem, I mean, you can make it, make it personal, too. Um, problem, um, uh, my life is falling apart. Reason, drinking too much alcohol. Solution, stop drinking the alcohol. So all of these things, I think, are identifying as the cause something that's actually a symptom of something that's deeper. So. I recently heard um, Bandana Shiva speaking uh, in which uh, she gave a talk in which she mentioned uh, the, the crisis in Syria and the, the immigration. And so when people take it one level deeper, why is immigration happening? They will often cite the sectarian violence that is happening in the Middle East that has created a, a conflict zone. 
But Fandana pointed out that the conflict in Syria arose when neoliberal economic policies and free trade policies were accepted by that country that forced a million people off the land and created uh, food insecurity. So all of a sudden, Christians, Shia, uh, Sunni, um, Kurds, you know, all of these different ethnic and religious groups that had lived in relative peace for centuries and centuries, all of a sudden started to blame each other, to fight over each other, with each other, and to generate the conditions that were partially responsible for the conflict going on there. So when we take it down to that level, the solution becomes no longer so obvious. And the ways that we attempt to impose a solution become useless. If the problem are these bad guys, as and, and most of the movies that we watch suggest that the problem is a bad guy, an inexplicably evil person or group that is doing bad things. And if you could only stop them, you could only kill them, usually is the solution in, a, in, in movies, then things will be fine. E even children's movies are usually like that. Like The Lion King, for example. The problem is a bad lion. And the solution is the utter humiliation, and probably, I don't know if he ends up getting killed, I've not watched it, but most, most, mo most of popular culture feeds into this mentality. And we know what to do. We know what to do. So we're comfortable with situations that have a bad guy, or a bad germ, or a bad weed, or a bad insect, or a bad part of ourselves. It is convenient, for example, in the environmentalist discourse uh, to blame those evil executives at Monsanto. I just had a, a funny in interchange with a, with a um, leading environmentalist guy, and um, he described having been in an actual uh, seminar with all of the top management of Monsanto. And dang it, if these weren't the nicest people he'd ever met, you know, just like, like friendly, warm, um, and, and, and truly, sincerely believing that they were doing such good in the world. Uh, helping the world feed its hungry people. You know, they believed completely. Like, that story of these are just bad people was untenable. And that makes it, that, that actually, when, when our uh, solutioneering is geared toward destroying evil, finding something to fight against, and the situation doesn't offer us an easy target, then we don't know what to do. And that state of bewilderment is good. Because the alternative is to manufacture a target and go to war against them. To project evil onto somebody, say a Monsanto executive, who is in fact doing exactly what you would do if you were a Monsanto executive. And if you had the entire history the entire acculturation of that Monsanto executive. You would do the same thing. So if you get rid of those executives, guess what's going to happen? You win that fight, which isn't likely, but you could. 
maybe, win the fight against the bad people, then new bad people are going to come and occupy those positions. So then it becomes a matter of changing the ground, of, of altering the, the context that encourages people to do the kind of things that are destroying the planet. And guess what? We don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. Because the, 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 the context, the matrix of causes that is pushing humanity over the cliff includes everything. And it goes down level after level after level. You could say, for example, that, that the behavior of Monsanto executives has to do with the um, nature of corporations, which are legally required to maximize shareholder interests. But it goes deeper than that, because it's not just the, the corporate charter and the legal system that says that. It's also the economic system. If you are managing your company in a way that doesn't bring maximum financial return, then you are a ripe target for takeover. Because the, the um, merger and acquisitions specialist or the corporate raider say, you know, like your company could be generating more income if you only cut down those forests that you own. And if only you, uh, you know, bought some industrial trawlers to scrape the ocean of fish and you did this, that, and the other thing, like you could do better. So your company is undervalued because it's only reflecting the value of your current operations, which could be a bit more rapacious. So you could say that it's the, the whole structure of the economy. And then it comes down to, so you know, where does this pressure to maximize return come from? And you can trace it back to, to the psychology of investment and to pension funds and then to the way money is created as interest-bearing debt. So maybe the money system is the problem. And how do you go to war against that? And even that has a deeper level. Because the, and I don't want to repeat the talk I may have given a few years ago. I don't remember what it was, but the sacred economics talk, you know. But what I, what the, the key insight of that book is that the money system itself is built on a deeper mythology, the mythology of separation that holds us as separate individuals in a world of other, as these bubbles of psychology bouncing around, uh, locked in a prison of flesh, separate from each other, separate from other beings in nature, separate from the world, interacting with it, but existentially separate. Humanity then also separate from nature, and holding that, that full beingness exists in humans alone, maybe to some extent in animals, Maybe they're sort of conscious, maybe, and plants, maybe a rudimentary amount, but not rocks or oceans or rivers or the sun or the moon or the wind. That these are just kind of mechanical forces. That's part of this. When you're in that story, then the, then the um, treatment of nature as just a bunch of stuff makes sense. The treatment of nature as if it were not a sacred being makes sense if you're in that story. And so the economic system, the system of technology, money, all of that is aligned with that story. So maybe if you want to find the enemy to fight, that's the enemy. But how do you fight that? It's not as easy as killing something or imprisoning something or building a surveillance system or a wall or a security system to keep it out. 
And then, of course, then you realize that this story, this mythology really is what it is, of separation, inhabits ourselves as well. The external structures mirror internal structures, and we live from that story every day. So what do you do then? Who's the enemy then? And that's why I think that this moment of bewilderment is a good thing and a necessary thing so that we don't reflexively enact solutions that are based on a delusion. So to take environmentalism again, if, I mean, if the problem really were those bad people in positions of power, then the solution is e easy. We know what to do. But if that isn't the problem and we're pretending that it is, we will never change anything. We have to be in reality if we're going to change anything. And that stepping into reality, and maybe you've had this moment yourselves, maybe not in the political realm, but it could even be in the personal realm. When you have this moment of realization that you are in a delusion, and that everything you were doing was part of perpetuating the problem, then there is that moment of, I don't know what to do. There's that moment of bewilderment. And I call that the fertile ground of bewilderment because that unknowing is an empty space that allows new responses to emerge. That moment of, that stunned moment after Brexit, I think is the harbinger of a lot more to come. As the futility of our normal responses to crisis becomes apparent. America, I believe, is heading toward a much bigger moment of bewilderment. I mean, I mean, we should already be there. I mean, just the, the fact that we have a candidate like Donald Trump, and by the way, Hillary Clinton is not much better. Um, the fact that we have these two candidates already shows that our system is completely dysfunctional. But we're still, we still can cling to this veneer of normalcy. You know, at least, at least like, you know, you still have a choice, you still go to the polls, you still vote, you know, and, and the system's still kind of working, but it's so fragile because no one really believes in it anymore. And I personally think that Donald Trump is going to get elected. I can't think of a very uh, plausible scenario for that to happen. Um, you know, my rational brain says that's not very likely, but... I think he's going to get elected for reasons of dramatic aesthetics. In other words, like if you were writing the screenplay of American history <laughs> that starts with, you know, Thomas Jefferson and, and Benjamin Franklin, you know, and these like, like truly like, you know, um, intellectual giants, you know. Um, and remarkable, remarkable people, and, and, and it starts there, and then, like, you know, then you end up, like, what can be more perfect than ending up with Donald Trump? It's, it just has this kind of um, 
It's almost like you know a dramatic necessity for it to happen. And when that happens, really, uh, chaos is going to break loose. Um, there's going to be massive civil unrest. He'll be completely ineffective. Um, and the system will fall apart. And who knows what's going to happen. If Hillary's elected, you know, she's, she'll be a much more effective administrator of American empire, neoliberal economics, a more effective servant of Wall Street, of drilling and fracking and so on and so forth. And we might, you know, uh, muddle on for a few more years before that happens. But it could happen at any time. The, the um, disintegration of normal could happen any time because it's so fragile right now. The stuff with Deutsche Bank, for example. Uh, at any moment, there could just be a cascade of, of um, financial repercussions. It's, it's, it's like a, it's, it's hanging by a thread. The whole system's hanging by a thread. And it's impossible to really to predict when that thread is going to break. But it will break. And we will then, and it won't, it's not easy to fix it because we don't have real faith in the system anymore. The core has hollowed out, leaving a very, very fragile shell. The core of real belief and trust in our system is, is, has been hollowed out. So when it breaks, there's not going to be a lot of commitment to fixing it and making things back the way that they were. Because no one really wants them the way that they were. No one believes in it anymore, really. Almost no one. Even the elites don't believe it. They don't believe their own rhetoric. They don't believe their own public pronouncements. Someone was telling me, um, who was I with? Um, who's the guy who, uh, yeah, Zach, somebody who, Zach Goldsmith, who lost the election for mayor, you know? And he was describing, like, um, the kind of character assassination and so forth, and the taking things that he said, which may have been, you know, um, repellent, but taking them out of context to make them even more repellent, you know, in this kind of, this like hardball politics. Uh, just like these vicious slanders against him and stuff. And, and then, um, you know, then he loses, you know, and, and, and this, so he's, this guy's walking with, with, with Zach, and the very people who engineered these um, vicious attacks against him, like, hey, Zach, you know, like genuinely happy to see him because they never believed the things that they were saying. The political culture is completely insincere. And I'm, I'm just saying that because uh, to, to, to kind of point out the, um, the fragility of the system. So, ah. We need to become comfortable with not knowing. Because when we think we know, and we actually don't know, we're going to do the wrong thing. I'm writing a book now on climate, although I hesitate to say that it's about climate, because then everybody thinks they know what I'm writing about, or what I'm going to say, which is things are really bad, and we have to cut carbon as soon as possible and as much as possible, and then maybe we'll have a chance 
But if you do the numbers and add in the methane and the feedback loops and stuff, it's probably hopeless, but we still have this chance, so we have to put all of our energy, all of our energy, do or die right now. So things like anything that doesn't contribute to that then is kind of a waste of time. And I had a conversation with a, with a very influential environmental fundraiser on this. And he said, Charles, you're just going to have to decide if you're going to be relevant or not. Relevant means joining my all-out campaign to implement a carbon tax. Irrelevant means you do anything else. Because anything else, we're going we're gonna to die. If we don't stop this right now, we're going to die. If you are trying to save the whales, if you're trying to, to uh, free dolphins from captivity, you know, if you're trying to um, restore a wetland somewhere, if you're trying to uh, free wrongfully convicted men from death row, if you're trying to uh, uh, house the homeless, if you're trying to, um, I mean, any of these causes that, and that probably many people in this room are involved in, sorry, irrelevant, wasting your time. But what I am learning is that the same um, reflexive pattern of identifying the most proximate cause and going to war against that is happening in the climate change arena as well. So on one level, you can say, like, what if carbon, yeah, like, I'm not denying that carbon has a greenhouse effect and that it is part of the imbalance that is um, a, a, a planetary disease, really. I'm not denying that. I don't, I don't, I'm not um, really questioning the science, which is very well established. Uh, although the fact that big science uh, endorses that view, the fact that there's scientific consensus around it, is actually uh, not a plus but a minus in, in, my, in my book because there's so many things about which there's scientific consensus that I disagree with. But this is something that even though there's scientific consensus about it, I still do kind of agree with it. But what's, what, what are greenhouse gases a symptom of? What's carbon, carbon dioxide a symptom of? And <clears throat> so here's one thing. So, so the, the, the direct response is uh, problem, climate change, cause, carbon dioxide, solution, stop creating carbon dioxide. Seems very simple. But a lot of the things that we are doing to lower carbon dioxide or lower greenhouse gas levels are actually making things worse. And it's happening again and again and again. For example, our friend Deepak will back me up on this one, there's biofuels. So the idea is that if you burn uh, trees, wood, or other biomass, instead of fossil fuels, then you're not going to add more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere because, because new ones will grow and reabsorb the carbon that was, that was freed by burning the old ones, right? It makes sense, right? Well, 
what aren't you measuring, though, in that scenario? You're not measuring the ability of trees and other biomass to, to sequester carbon underground when, they're, um, when they die and the roots don't fully decay. It, it builds the soil. Building the soil means more and more carbon is being sequestered underground. Well, that doesn't enter or hasn't until recently entered the calculations. And it's very hard to calculate carbon sequestration. I've been looking at the research, the, the, the numbers that different scientists give are wildly divergent and, and vary from, from region to region, from ecosystem to ecosystem, even you know, from microclimate to microclimate. It's really hard to measure that kind of thing. Um, another example is, is uh, big hydro projects that would seem to provide a carbon, a zero carbon source of energy. But um, what happens when you actually implement, say, a big hydro dam in India or China? Well, for one thing, you submerge a lot of vegetation that then um, <coughs> releases methane, which is um, 20 or 30 times more potent to greenhouse gas than carbon, than carbon dioxide. But you're also driving subsistence farmers off the land who then move into uh, you know, concrete apartment blocks that are built for them uh, so that to compensate them for the loss of their lands that they've been living on for 30 generations or more. And then they join the industrial economy and increase demand for electricity that ends up getting met with coal-fired power plants. And, and so when you actually calculate everything, then the problem is getting worse. So what if Now, I'm, I'm, okay. I feel like now I'm almost like trying to lay out the entire thesis of my book. Um, and I'm going down this like little uh, cul-de-sac here. Uh, when we shift our view of Earth from a mechanistic understanding that says you make decisions based on quantifiable levels of various inputs that then have a predictable effect that we can model. And we change from that to seeing the planet as a living being and seeing every species, every biome, every ecosystem as one of its organs, then we understand that without having to make exhaustive measurements, we understand that the health of any being or any system on the planet is essential to the health of the whole thing. I mean, we've made the same mistake with the human body. You know, it was before we really understood that well how the human body works, we thought that things like tonsils and appendixes uh, were, were unnecessary. And so they were routinely removed in an effort to improve the body. But then, as we understand the, the, uh, the intelligence that's embodied in a human or any living being, we realize that like, actually these things have an important effect. Ecologists are now learning 
that and, and, and really coming to terms with the uh, interconnectedness of all things so that it's no surprise now when we, when we see Earth in that way as a living system, as, as a highly interconnected, interdependent living system. And I would say a living being. I mean, saying, calling it a living system is a way to say, well, I'm not one of those woo-woo people who actually think the planet is alive. You know, I'll, I'll say that it's a homeostatic system or something like that. But, but when we actually see Earth and everything on it as a living being, then our default, our default attitude toward, say, the boreal forests or the uh, seagrass, that's a big one that's been coming up in my research again and again, seagrass. Our, our default attitude is, I wonder what the importance of this is. I wonder how this is part of Gaian physiology. Whereas today, our default attitude is, well, here's a resource, or you know, here's an obstacle to building our, our new port facility, or something like that. And so at, when we approach it with this curiosity, how, how is this an integral part of Gaian physiology, then, we're, then the answers start coming. And so in the case of seagrass and, and kelp, too, like even in the CO2 frame, it becomes clear that, wow, this is sequestering enormous amounts of carbon and, and uh, alkalizing the ocean, and it's been decimated through development and through pollution. So all of a sudden, these issues that seemed irrelevant to my friend, the mainstream environmental activist, these issues that seem irrelevant start to take on relevance when you understand that all things are interconnected, not just ecologically, but socially as well. Even, say, the whales, you know, save the whales. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it turns out that whales have this really key function in the circulation of nutrients in the ocean. And that, and, and that when the whales were decimated in, in around, the, around Antarctica, then you'd think that the uh, krill that they eat would proliferate. But no, the, the amount of krill plummets also because the whales are no longer going into the depths to bring up nutrients and then they, they pee and poop on the surface and they feed the, the, uh, the um, plankton that the krill eat, you know, and it's like this whole interconnected web gets truncated and everything falls apart. So all of these seemingly, and we can extend it to the social realm too. Like what is it that makes us, that makes us as, as human beings in this society so desperate to consume? What makes us hurt so much that, that we are deaf and numb to the suffering of other beings and to their livingness, to their consciousness, to their beingness? What are the social conditions for that? So we can see that all of these different dimensions of healing are necessary if we're going to address the problem on a deep level. So I would say that on the one hand, like, yeah, there's this bewilderment, this we don't know what to do. 
We don't know what to do because the logic that we operate in brings us face to face with the futility of being able to deal with the problem on the level that is presented to us. But on the other hand, we also do know what to do. And often what we need to do are precisely those things that seem irrelevant. The heart says yes to them, but the mind says, how could that possibly help? How could it possibly help to spend 10 years trying to free one orca from captivity? How could it possibly help to spend 10 years um, taking care of one old woman with Alzheimer's? Like the things that, that draw us. Our world story does not have a place for them. So they seem impractical. They seem unrealistic or naive. But when we understand the deep root of the crisis, which is the totality of the story of separation that, that surrounds us, then we see, yeah, these are actually essential. Because they change the, the, the foundation of the world-destroying machine. I recently um, was speaking uh, to a group, and one old man, a uh, beautiful old guy, he said, you know, he's an old hippie, you know, he said, <clears throat> back in the day, in the 60s, it was the age of, we're going to change the system. We're going to stop the war in Vietnam. We're going to change the system. <clears throat> and then after that, it was the age of, um, don't try to change the system. We're going to go back to the land, and we're going to, we're going to build an alternative system. Uh, and then after that, it was the age of, a big crisis is coming. We have to build resiliency and make this transition. And now, he says, now is the age of kiss your ass goodbye. Uh, and he's been reading a lot of Guy McPherson and, and kind of the, uh, climate um, catastrophists, which is very compelling on its own terms. Um, if, if we really understand how this planet works, then those arguments are, are almost irrefutable. But I don't think we understand how this planet works. Anyway, so he, so he said, yeah, it's the age of kiss your ass goodbye, so I've decided to stop the kind of activism that I was doing and just devote myself to what's beautiful to me. And I said to him, paradoxically, that is what is going to save the planet. Because those things are not on the, the menu of conventional responses that are built on a conventional logic and a conventional theory of change that's, itself, that's actually part of the problem. One more.
Sometimes people wonder why I have so much uh, silence in my speeches. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing. Like in moments, I don't know what to say. Just like in moments, we don't know what to do. And in those moments, do we just kind of habitually reenact the things that we know how to do, even if they're not appropriate to that moment? Or am I just going to blabber on saying things that I already know how to say, even if they're not quite appropriate to that moment? I feel like that would be insulting to the listener. So this story of separation that I spoke of is falling apart. The structures built upon it are falling apart. And the story itself is unraveling as well. It's no longer such an attractive proposition that we are these separate individuals in a world of other. And no longer does it seem true that we are separate from nature, that we are maybe conditionally dependent on nature, but we're rising above that through technology. That was the old story. 50, 100 years ago, no one in this room would have doubted that our destiny was you know, artificial food, robot servants, space colonies, and the transcendence of nature. That was considered a good thing. Today, no one, well, maybe there are some who still believe it. The singularity folks, you know, and the nanotechnology is going to change everything and, and we're going to have immortality and et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's still people who cling to that. But generally speaking, we've become disenchanted with that mythology simply because it's not working. So that breakdown is also creating an empty space uh, into which a new story can come. I call it a new and ancient story because it isn't new. It's the story that most human beings have held up until very recently. And I call it, using Thich Nhat Hanh's word, the story of interbeing, that says you are not a separate individual, you are the totality of all of your relationships. You are the holographic reflection of the entire planet or the entire cosmos. Therefore, anything that happens in the world is happening to you. Therefore, anything that you do has a, an effect on everything else. Therefore, nothing you do is irrelevant. We're in a church here, so I should maybe give the Christian translation of that understanding, which is God sees everything. No action is wasted. No action is invisible. No action fails to have an effect. In fact, even when it seems that it has no effect, your, your dedication to something beautiful to you, to changing the world, to feeding the hungry, to to and to... to you know, stopping a development project, all of these things that, that sometimes, maybe usually, um, are unsuccessful. 
they are nonetheless having an effect on the world. I'll share with you a story from um, Mark Dubois, who's an environmental activist in the States. They were trying to save a river from, from being dammed up. This was a couple decades ago, I think, in California. And they tried everything. They did legal challenges, petition drives, direct action, occupying the site, you know, everything that they could, getting arrested, and they lost. And the dam was built, and this gorgeous, pristine valley was flooded, and, and, and they lost. And they were so devastated that after that, they could not even bear to meet up again because of the painful memory of that failure that it invoked. However, coincidentally or not, that marked the end of the dam building era in North America. It was as if their total dedication were a kind of prayer. Where that which listens and that which is watching us all the time says, are you serious about this? Are you serious about healing the planet? Really? Show me. Therefore, our failures are kind of a prayer. Not to say that we shouldn't do everything we can to succeed in our efforts. But even our failures shift the universe in alignment with the intention that we took into it. Often those failures come with um, a teaching where we realize perhaps that we failed because we were not seeing clearly the situation or we were not seeing clearly something in ourselves. Perhaps we were creating conflict where there need be no conflict. Sometimes there need be conflict. Sometimes there is a time for a fight, a legal fight or some other kind of fight. But as I was, was describing before, the habit of fighting is so ubiquitous that we apply it even when it's not time for a fight, creating enemies unnecessarily. So, for example, to go, go back to the Monsanto executives, if we install them in the role of evil, evil person, and relate to them as such, they will, in our experience, have almost no choice but to enact that role. We're going to seem to them like shrill, um, angry, you know, anger-motivated um, uh, extremists because they themselves know that they're good people. You know, here's somebody who's calling me all kinds of names and saying I'm, I'm greedy and, and evil, you know, and delusional and, and immoral and et cetera, et cetera. And like, like I'm not going to listen to that person. Because it's obviously not true because, you know, I like walk my neighbor's dog when he's out of town. And I'm a good father, you know. And when my mother was sick, I took off work for three weeks and I was by her bedside. And now you're calling me, you're making me into a monster. Like, no conversation is possible. And I'm going to treat you like an attacker then. So that's just kind of one um, example of how our how the story that we hold actually creates the reality that matches the story. 
and how, and then to take it, you know, to the internal level, like what, what, psych, what psychology or what personal history motivates us to see the world in those terms. So that's why the, the, you know, one of the things that isn't irrelevant is the inner work that we do to become more clear in our understanding of ourselves as we also become more clear in our understanding of the world so that we can operate in legality and not in delusion. All right, obviously I could say a lot more, but <clears throat> I think I will finish with a story and then I'll open it up to, to questions and things. <clears throat> So, once upon a time, there was a man who was lost in a deep underground maze that was miles and miles of corridors and stairways going up and down and spirals and circles. And he had, he had gone into that maze for some good reason. Maybe it was to find a treasure or slay a monster. But whatever that reason was, he's forgotten it by now. And he knows that he's supposed to get out. He must get out because the, the maze is getting hotter and hotter and more and more suffocating. And he knows if he doesn't get out soon, he's going to die in there. So he's frantically racing around and not getting anywhere because he keeps hitting dead ends and turns back and goes another way and then finds himself back at his starting point in the center of the maze, and then he runs again and, and tries another plan, another strategy, and the same thing happens, and he's back in the center again and again and again, and he's getting tired. And a voice says to him, you're totally confused. You're totally lost. You're not getting anywhere. You better just stop. Just give it up for a minute. And, and the other voices in his head say, no, you cannot give it up even for a minute because that's one minute less to get out. And you're going to die in here. You better run faster. And here's a new plan. So, okay, he runs even faster. And guess what? Again, he enters, he ends up back in the center of the maze. And this time, he's so exhausted. He's at the end of his resource. And he has no choice now but to collapse right back where he started. After all this effort, he has gotten nowhere, and he's, he's despondent. And there he is, and time ticks by, and his turmoil of thoughts quiets down, and he begins to reflect on his racing around. And he realizes a few things. He realizes that there's actually kind of a structure and a logic to this maze that he was running too fast to really notice. He realizes that his own responses had a structure and a pattern too. Perhaps every time after he hit a dead end and turned right, then the next time he would turn left. There's a political metaphor for you. He realized also that, he was, that there were small dark passageways and secret doors that he had been in too much of a hurry to really notice or to really explore. And as his breath 
quiets down and his heartbeat quiets down, he realizes one more thing, that there is a sound that has always been there, but he was too loud to really hear it. But it's always been there, this kind of musical, beautiful musical sound that has almost no source. It's coming from everywhere, and it's very quiet, but it's there. And now he's rested a little bit, and he begins now to walk, guided by his understanding of the logic of the part of the maze that has trapped him. He begins to walk, no longer repeating the same dead ends, now taking those dark passageways and those secret doors, taking the time to go down those. And as and he walks slowly, because he knows if he runs too fast, he's going to fall back into his old habits. And he now sometimes, now he's reaching new territory, where his understanding of the logic of the maze no longer serves him. And so he faces again moments of unknowing. He reaches an intersection. Do I go left or do I go right? Do I go up or do I go down? What do I do? How do I make that decision? So what he does is he listens again for that sound. And he takes the passageway from which the sound comes the most clearly. That's the way I will go. Even though, it, gosh, that seems to be turning backwards. Why should I? But, but oh, but then eventually, yes, I'm glad I took this one. I'm glad I listened to that sound. Even though it seemed nonsensical. And eventually, he reaches the final passageway, where there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And he emerges into the sunlight, into this world that he vaguely remembered must exist. And he finds the source of the sound, which is his lover, who has been singing to him all this time. At that virtual moment of bewilderment, that's all we have to guide us. I don't know what the song is for you, but I think we can all hear it. And I think we can all, we have a memory of a past and future time where we're not stuck in this maze the suffocating maze. So I would like to encourage you to trust that feeling. These ordeals, such as humanity is going through right now, are not set up to be impossible. They're only set up to seem impossible at certain moments, just like native coming-of-age ordeals, or many life ordeals that you're put through. Where there's a moment where it seems hopeless. There's that moment of darkest despair, where it seems like it's never going to change, and I don't know how to change it, and I don't know what to do, and, and I can't get out of this. And it's like the world is closing in on you. 
and you just give up. And it's not a prescription for surrender and letting go. That's fake, that leads to fake surrender. It's, I just don't know what to do, help. And that is the collapse of the story and the entry into the space between stories and where, where the new things can happen and where we are privy to a matrix of cause and effect beyond what we knew that proves to us that the old force-based causality, because in the old story, change happens by exerting a force, a physical force, a financial force, a military force, a pharmaceutical force. But we, in this state, we realize that that account of how to change the world is woefully deficient. And sometimes we experience being held by a larger causality, a larger intelligence, and synchronicities happen. And the things that we do bear fruit in unexpected ways, and we receive help from unexpected sources. And we no longer feel separate from the universe outside of ourselves. So that's a little preview of what's coming, not only for many of us individually, but for our society. I'm ready for questions or comments. So we've got a roving mic here, and we've got like 15, 20 minutes maybe. There's a woman here. Woman here in the blue scarf. Just thinking about what responses we can make to terrible happenings in Syria. And it's probably easy for us all to pray for or to send love to refugees and people in Aleppo. But I'm just wondering if actually we should be sending them to the war leaders and Assad and defense ministers and arms dealers. And might that be more, more useful or both? Uh-huh. Yeah. So a friend of mine once had a, an audience with the Dalai Lama. Uh, in fact, he was invited to the Dalai Lama's house for lunch with a group that he had been leading on a trip in India. And one of the women asked him, asked the Dalai Lama, um, is it a good idea to pray for peace? You know, is that what we should be doing? Pray for peace. And the Dalai Lama said, praying for peace is wonderful, but if that's all you do, you're wasting your time. You have to actually live the prayer, too. So, and this isn't really what you're asking, but I'll get to it. Um, so I, I see, like, 
prayers for peace, you know, sending love to somebody, for example. I see that as kind of a, um, a, uh, a way to prepare yourself and offer yourself for action. So be careful if you do that. Because then, whoever's listening to that prayer, and, okay, footnote, I want to return to this. Um, whoever's, the whoever part, okay, that's important. Whoever's listening to that prayer is going to say, oh, great, you're willing to actually do something about this. I will give you an opportunity. And an opportunity will arise to act on that love that you're sending, which may not be a recognized, like you might not actually run into a defense minister on the street, uh, but if you're, if you're sending love to the defense ministers or to the, you know, warlords or to the people in the drone control rooms or something like that, and because yes, like they need that um, just as much as the victims do. If you're doing that, then you will have you will have some kind of opportunity to confront the proxy for them in your own life. You will have that opportunity to confront somebody who you had judged as a perpetrator, and you'll have some yeah an opportunity to to actually enact that love that you've been sending. So these prayers, you know. In a part of the old story is dualism that has this material realm and a spiritual realm, and what happens in the spiritual realm that's spiritual, and what happens in the material realm that's practical. But other cultures that were prior to the mythology and separation that we live in understood that that words have potency, and prayers especially have potency because there's always something listening, and that which is listening. So in a materialist world, well, who could be listening? Who could be actually listening? In the dominant story, it could be another human being, and that's it. Because animals don't understand language, plants, they don't really have consciousness in the old story, and the sun doesn't have ears, neither does the moon, right? So in the old, in the materialist story, the only option besides a human listening is this extra material being called God. But in a new story, or an ancient story, that doesn't arrogate the qualities of self to human beings alone, that doesn't say human beings are the only full and complete selves, but that grants subjectivity intelligence, awareness, consciousness, desire, etc., etc., to other beings in full measure. Not to say that their intelligence is the same as our intelligence, but they are, are not lower on the ladder of being. Animals are not lower on the ladder of being and subjectivity, and, and they're not more dull as experiencers. And neither are plants. And, and there's amazing research coming up now about soil intelligence, plant intelligence, plant communication, mycorrhizal intelligence, and so forth. And neither is water, even, a lesser degree of being. 
Nothing is. We're surrounded by beings who are listening all the time and who are transmitting our intentions out into the universe. Then it's no longer irrational and no longer conditional on a supernatural being for us to, to, to believe that, that our words have potency because something's always watching us. And this was known even in, in England not that long ago. David White was, was telling me, was, was, I, I wasn't telling me, I heard, I heard David White, the poet, speaking. to a, a, And he was describing his visit to a, a, a very traditional fisherman in like the Hebrides or something, like some, someone who really clung to the old ways. And this man, every morning, getting out of bed, there was a song for that. Opening the blinds to let the sun in, there was a prayer for that. Uh, cutting the first piece of bread of the day, there was a prayer for that. Anytime you exit the door, there's a little song for that, for getting into the boat, for casting your net, for every little, because he's surrounded by sentient beings. That is one of the deep forms of revolution that we need to go into in order to have, in order to survive on this planet. Because when we treat the earth as a pile of stuff, of instruments of our own utility, then we're only going to value it insofar as it's valuable to us. And that is not enough. Because our understanding of how it's valuable to us is deficient. Because we don't understand how this planet works. It's like this. I'm sorry, I'm taking all the time for like one question, but, but like imagine, imagine if I said, hey guys, you know, um, I've got a, a three-year-old son. And you know, like it's such a pain to take care of him, you know, and it's expensive, and why should I do it? Why should I just, why should I even do that? And you say, well, Charles, you know, if you don't do it, if you don't at least feed him, you're going to get arrested for child neglect and go to jail. And if you don't take good care of him, then he's not going to love you, and he's not going to take care of you in your old age. And I say, yeah, you're right. I better take care of him. Like, is, is that, is that going to result in a healthy person? And there's already a problem if I have to ask you that question, right? <laughs> Yet that is a lot of the environmental discourse. Well, why should we care about biodiversity? Oh, because of the medicines that might result from these species. You know, why should we care about carbon? Why? Because something bad will happen to us if we don't do it. Like, it's all this kind of instrumental utilitarian logic. And that is not enough to, when, when we speak from that place, and we speak to that place in this fearful place, this self-interested place, what we're going to motivate is more of looking out for myself. Like, we're taking that, we're saying, I know you, you just care about yourself and your children, but you don't care about other beings. Like, we're, we're creating a story that, that, like I was saying before, um, invites people into that state of being, into that role. So, basically I'm saying we've got to fall in love with this planet. All right. Yeah. That was a good answer. <laughs> Thanks. So, this gentleman here.
Um, it seems like you're describing um, a lot of systems that are accelerating kind of in, in a destructive direction towards collapse. But aren't there also, so what's your view also on the ongoing trends that seem to be going more towards interbeing? So for example, in this country and maybe around the world, less and less crime, less and less violence, more tolerance of gay people, of immigrants, uh, women are treated better, you know, over the last, over the yeah. centuries, things are kind of moving to more towards interbeing in that way. So mm -hmm. do you think there are kind of two currents maybe, one where things are collapsing because they're heading towards separation and then there's also this kind of ongoing thing that's we, maybe we don't even know how it's happening or how if anyone's making it happen but it's kind of happening anyway yeah well so for one thing yes um the the accelerating um tide of separation is mostly on the surface like things are getting worse and worse and worse on a surface level but underneath like I've noticed that people are generally kinder to each other than they were 20 years ago. When I go to cities, uh, I mean, maybe it's just me, but, but I, just like kind of the level of, of, of interaction seems to be getting more respectful. Um, I don't know if I'm imagining that. Um, bullying is on a steep decline. I've had this conversation with my sons, you know, they're my one son's 20 now, but um, I w a few years ago I watched The Breakfast Club with him. Have you seen that film? It was an American film that was popular in the 80s that was about high school, basically. And in high school, it was just normal to have these different cliques, you know, and kids getting beat up and bullied. It was just part of the air that we breathed, bullying. And Jimmy, my son, said, yeah, we just don't have that. Uh, when I was in school, the, 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 to be a popular kid, you had to, to basically um, dominate and um, insult and degrade other kids. That was the popular kids were the ones who did that, by and large. But Jimmy says, if you do that now, you're going to be ostracized. So, like that's like kind of this, and, and you might see a lot of stuff on cyberbullying, but, but. Um, that the fact that that's even news, that people are even outraged about that is a really positive sign. Same thing with, and like you're saying, like violent crime is going down. Um, in America, of course, we have all of these police killings of unarmed black men, and, and actually we're also leaders in killings of uh, white men too, but, but way more black men. Anyway, um, we're number one in even white-on-white -white gun violence, USA. Um, so, but anyway, but 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 like the fact that that it's even coming out into the surface, into public awareness, you know, it's not that there's more of the killings; it's that there's more awareness about them. So, I, I agree with you. I think that that the new story is really gathering strength in the margins and under the surface. Uh, at the surface level, there's still more drilling, more fracking, more bombing, more droning, you know, more neoliberal economics, you know, like the, the coup in Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the, the, the core um, is changing. And the other thing I'll say about that is that interbeing is the truth. We can only 
you can only suppress it at great and growing effort, temporarily, until we become exhausted. You know, it's like a parking lot covered in cement. If you don't maintain it, if you don't constantly maintain it in a state of ugliness, then beauty will erupt. Dandelions will come up, it'll crack, and, and in 50 years it'll be beautiful. And we are getting exhausted now at maintaining an ugly world. Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe one or two more. Uh, this gentleman here. The, the story of doubt that you talk about strikes me as very countercultural on a personal level. The what? The, the, the story of doubt, of not knowing. Of, of not knowing, yes. Of yes. not knowing. It strikes me as very uh, countercultural on a personal level. You know, if, if we're educated within a Western education system, either here or elsewhere in the world, we are brought up to always know the answer. Right. And if you don't know the answer, you are stupid. And stupid people are made to stand in the corner. And so there's something about listening, as you were talking about, listening to one's own story that says, I am prepared to be foolish. I am prepared to look stupid. And maybe then, therefore, listening to what you were saying, part of that new story is owning our own stupidity in the face of what appears to be wisdom, but is actually just a retelling of a story that no longer works. Yeah. That's well said. Thank you. One more? Okay, here we are. I just wanted to know um, what you think about the levels of fear going up. Like here in London, we have much more armed police. Every museum is controlled going in. So, <clears throat> you know, like even here at the Royal Academy, when I ask them, what are you looking for? They don't know what they're looking for in the bags, but they're searching anyway. Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, I said to them, are you looking for water, knives, bombs? And they're like, we're just looking. And so there's this, this, this idea that we should all be afraid, but nobody knows what we're really afraid of. And, yeah. and I just want to know, how do you counteract that in a city with 10 million people where if you ask somebody, they go, well, we have to be afraid because in, in this environment, but the environment is fear-based. Yeah. And, and I, I just don't know how to counteract that without challenging it, really. Yeah. So, thank you for that question, yeah. All of these, yeah. I mean, it's coming to the point where to enter any building, you have to go through security, which is, the subtext is, be afraid. And fear in, is baked into the cake of the old story. Insecurity is baked into the cake, because 
you are essentially at war with the universe. For starters, you're at war with other human beings, each of whom is seeking to maximize their rational self-interest. You're at war with the rest of life, all of which is seeking to maximize its own reproductive self-interest at your expense. Nature in the old story is this all-out competition, life-or-death competition. And you're also kind of at war with the process of entropy in the universe, where your well-being comes from how well you can insulate yourself from and dominate these arbitrary nat natural forces that have no intelligence or order or movement toward organization or beauty in, in and of themselves that, again, don't have the qualities of self. They're just this kind of random mechanism. So fear is built in. As the story dissolves, we desperately try to maintain it, or it desperately tries to maintain itself. Because a story is a being, actually. It's not just animals and plants and humans and the sun and the rivers that are beings. Stories are beings, too. And it, they go through a life cycle. Uh, and you may notice this in your own life. If, if there's a story, like a relationship, perhaps, or a job or a way of being in the world that's not working anymore, you might cling to it all the more desperately and all the more blindly in denial. So the, this larger cultural story of separation is doing the same thing. Therefore, it's creating these rituals of fear. That, that security line, that is a ritual in every sense of the word. You know, you're, 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 it's kind of like a humiliation ritual. You know, you get searched. You know, you go through a machine. You know, like, like a, a button is pressed. You know, like it's, it's, it is a ritual that is designed to um, propagate fear. So as to what to do about it, like I don't think that um, meeting that worldview with intellectual force is going to do that much. What you have to do is to give people an experience that contradicts the world of fear. And that could be generosity, compassion, deep listening. Uh, you'll know what to do. And so even on a personal level, anything that you do that doesn't fit into the story of separation, any interaction that you have, any bit of humor that you bring to somebody, any bit of humanity that you bring to this kind of uh, soulless transactional relationship, that is a disruptive act. That is a political act even. When we say that, you know, when we recognize that this whole world-destroying machine is built on the story of separation, then anything we do to disrupt the story of separation is a political act and an environmental act. And I'm not saying only work on that level, but also don't minimize that level. Don't, don't call that irrelevant. It's very relevant. It changes the ground on which our society is built. And, and yeah, so that's one thing you can do because, you know, the more people have an experience of connection, of intimacy, of love, of acceptance, the more ridiculous those rituals seem. When I'm at the airport, I always make some kind of joke, you know, I do some kind of, I just, my goal is to make it seem ridiculous, to make it seem kind of obsolete. Um, 
So humor is another good way to do that. So like on a personal level, bringing, I mean, it's almost a cliche, but bringing more love into the world. And also on a community level. Uh, also, you know, through what you devote your life energy toward. If you are, if it doesn't fit into the story of separation, if it's dedicated to bringing beauty, love, compassion, this is not news to anybody, right? But I guess the reason I'm saying it is that, is to uh, illuminate the political dimension of it. That, and maybe that's what the song is. To listen to what is beautiful to you. To what calls to your heart. Maybe that's the organ that listens to the song. That guides you to do things that the mind, which is still lost in the maze, may not recognize as relevant. But which is actually our path to that more beautiful world that we remember and recognize and carry with us. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.